0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I am absolutely delighted to have Dara Power calling in from Ireland. He is a sales trainer operating in the channel within a large corporate in the IT space. Dara, would you mind giving a 30-second introduction to who you are and the kind of work that you do with your clients?
1: Certainly, Marcus. Delighted to be on the phone with you. Thank you very much uh, for the opportunity. So, um, yeah, I work. Globally, with people in the channel, uh, directly with partners and also with partner managers on sales and how to improve sales and how to work, I guess, with the optimal benefit for for everybody involved, including customers. Um, The last couple of years, I've been running global programs and working around the world with different partners and professionals.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Dara came to my attention when he very kindly produced the visual summary of our book, Making Channel Sales Work. And the uh, area of common ground that both of us were absolutely passionate about is being partner-centric because we both feel that it's a very underappreciated area of channel management. Dara, my question to you is, what goes wrong when you're too selfish in your channel management, when you're too vendor-centric?
1: So to quote from your book, Marcus, one of the quotes that I liked was that people do things for their reasons, not yours. And the reason that people decide to work with other people or the reason that partners decide to work with companies is they have customers and who they're servicing. And obviously, they want to provide the best benefit to those customers. So the reason that they decide to do it is for, for their own business. And they've got their own measurement systems, their own go-to-market, their own, I guess, connections and relationships. And sometimes when people get together, that's very clear. But as the relationship progresses, the the boundaries can blur a little bit and you end up with situations where things go wrong is that one partner takes another partner for granted. And in this context, I mean a vendor sometimes takes a partner for granted or a partner takes a vendor for granted. But the things that make the partnership work are understanding why people are in it in the first place, which is always to do with a customer and servicing that then everybody benefits. There's value add in the relationship for the customer. The customer gets things that only the partner can provide. The partner gets things that only the vendor can provide. And uh, that's how it should work. But I think... In the busyness and uh, I get the, the hard measurements, kind of of the day-to-day business. Sometimes perspective can be lost on that. It's not that it happens uniformly, but it's like uh, it, it, it does happen. So the partner-centric kind of idea is just remembering the perspective that everybody's in it for their own reasons and operating from that basis.
0: One of the things that strikes me is that too many vendors rush to recruit partners. And in that rush to build that land army, what they failed to do is think ahead. And it's like a land grab. And one of the things that we advocate in the book is that you slow down and instead of building a land army, you build a special forces unit and you focus on really understanding the executive objectives of the partner understanding the individual salespeople's motivations for selling in order that you can create a genuine partnership rather than some loose affiliation where there isn't any loyalty. And the partner-centric message really comes back down to how do we make sure that our objectives and interests are aligned with the partner's objectives and interests so that when we work with the customer, everybody's needs are met and we get that win-win-win outcome or no deal. And I'm curious, in terms of what you're training people to do in the the lead up to establishing the partnership, how are you guys going about contracting with prospective partners, and what are you doing to teach your channel managers to do that so that you don't end up with mismatched expectations and a divorce and wondering
1: who keeps the kids? so it's an interesting question because it depends to some extent on business models. So for example, if I'm a, a, primarily a professional services business with an IT wing, then I don't necessarily want to differentiate particularly to say that for this group of people with this set of problems, I help them. I like to keep my options open and think, well, there's a lot of different ways I could get in the door. So it's not necessarily the loose affiliation is driven by either a vendor or a partner or a customer. It's that. Very often, service-oriented businesses with a sales wing tend to keep their options open. So maybe we decide we'll do some business process outsourcing, and from that, we'll grow our, our, our software footprint in order to build a maintenance base to get the cash flow from that, and then we can sell more services on the back of it. So in terms of how we, as a community, work together, one of the biggest challenges is Do people want to differentiate? In America, they say you pick a niche and get rich. So there's some organizations, some partner companies who would say, this is what we do. This is who we do it for. So we sell, let's say, we sell back office software to other businesses in the brewing industry. We specialize in microbreweries. And uh, we understand the contract microbrewing business better than anybody else. So you're a microbrewer who is going to rent space in a big brewery's production facility for a couple of months and do a couple of batch runs and you want to manage that process. That's a very clear niche and a very clear reason to do something. So the conversation with that type of company is very different from a company who has multiple service-based revenue streams, multiple vendor relationships, multiple software kind of uh, capabilities. And the general kind of way is coverage in the market but i think there's a tension between differentiated businesses and non-differentiated businesses and the conversations are different in those kind of different segments and that's that's just picking two ends of the continuum but it, it is a continuum so it's really on a business by business basis what is it that this company exists for who do they help what problems do they solve what ambitions do they enable and what, what does their customer base really want, you know, and, and it also does a lot of global variation. So if you're a very dominant company in a market, let's say you are in Ghana and you have the whole of the Ghanaian back office professional services outsourcing market, the conversation there is quite a simple one. Coverage of markets is a very there's a lot of variables that go in there, and it's really about as we said at the very start being partner-centric and understanding what that business is trying to do and first do, and that varies a lot.
0: I've got to be honest, I haven't really looked at it like that. That, That's more the subject of our third book, I think. But what what I am very curious about is as you start to go out to market and look for partners, and you're starting to develop that very partner-centric service mindset, what are the key things that you would advise people to do the making channel sales work was really written as a book for smaller vendors who were either going to market with a channel for the first time, or where they have a channel which has gone silent on them, it's disappointing, and they want to rekindle it. If we're looking at that particular area of the the channel market, what are the tips and advice that you would give vendors like that in terms of Establishing clear expectations and putting in systems and processes and boundaries to ensure that the relationship works, not without conflict, because I think there's always going to be, or there can always be constructive conflict, but in order to eliminate destructive conflict and mismatched
1: expectations. It's an interesting question because if you're talking about at the very start of the relationship, the first question is why? Why from the... Vendors' point of view, they want to have a channel and what's the purpose of that channel. So if you're a small vendor and you're trying to start something up, probably Jeffrey Moore's Crossing the Chasm is a good place to start in terms of what niche are you really going to target? How are you going to get people to adopt early? And, uh, and then once you have some, let's say you knock over a particular industry or a particular group, how do you scale up on that? Because it's a resource question. You don't have so many resources, and you're trying to uh, use those resources in the most efficient way possible to generate some momentum. If you're in a position where you already have some momentum and you have some scale, then the things you mentioned in the book are really useful. You know, is is the executive engagement. Why is it that you want to get involved here? What is it that you're hoping to achieve in the next three to five years as a business? what's your expectations when working with us? You know, what what do you need from us in order to position to a customer? And I liked some of the things you mentioned in the book as well about very often vendors tend to focus on product. And here's uh, how you sell our product. But actually, it's more from a customer orientation, as you mentioned, which is like, uh, why would it make sense who does this make sense for? What problem does it solve, and why, from that customer's perspective, would they be interested in this? So it, it's more than the solution; it's linking it to the business needs of a customer. That there's a kind of a, and that there's a gap there. And I would see probably that that's true. You know that, and vendors who really want partners to be successful should look beyond the product conversation and into the business conversation. So the partners are clear why, and then the how is helps them connect their customers, who they already have, back to the vendor in terms of the, the positioning to those customers and the, what the solution enables. So we have this solution, so what, from a customer's perspective.
0: Absolutely. I always describe uh, product training and say uh, you trying to sell using features and benefits like showing photos of your ugly children. You you think they're beautiful, but no one else does. And the problem is that, you know, throughout the book, we've made the point that um, people buy for their reasons and sell for their reasons, not yours. And unless you've taken the time to really understand your partner and what they're trying to achieve, and you take the time with the partner to understand their custom, then chances are, it's just going to be another opening the wallet and showing up, uh, showing the photos. You know, when you look at the role of a channel manager, they have to be strategists. They have to be able to design a plan to go to market. They need to be able to do territory plans, account plans, pursuit plans. They need to be strategic and think about where the market is moving, where the customer is moving, where the partner is moving, where the vendor is moving, where the, is moving, where the competition is moving. and that takes a very different kind of beast. That's more like a, a really good e- a high-end enterprise salesperson. But then on top of that, they have to find and recruit the partners. They have to create messaging and content, and they have to create the means by which to communicate and get the partner on board. They have to enable and develop them, which means that they have to have an onboarding process, an implementation, ed- education process, They need to meet regularly to communicate. They have to put together incentive programs that drive the right behavior. They're co-selling and co-marketing. And they also then have to manage a report. And in any given day, a really strong channel manager is probably going to be wearing upwards of a dozen hats from a group of 90 to 120 that we've identified, different functions. How do you get somebody who has those capabilities in fact a better question in order to develop into somebody like that what's the kind of career path that you're seeing people who end up being channel superstars
1: taking you're right there is a massive diversity of skills and very few people are fully formed in fact nobody's fully formed and all that i think if we bring it back there's a couple of quotes i like one is that a Dale Carnegie has a quote, something like, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So sometimes people move into the channel because they're seen as relationship builders or rather than closers in, in a sales context. But somebody who has the ability to understand all the players involved in the game, what measurements those people have in success terms. So the sales manager of a partner, are they selling software if so for who how many different vendors what's on their territory what kind of industries what else is in their sales bag are they selling services are they selling you know hardware there there can be all sorts of business models but really to have enough trust with people to have an honest conversation there because a relationship builder would be one sort of profile but somebody who can get to the numeracy and the, the numbers and in enough detail to function because if i'm a a partner, I'm an independent business. Why should I share my numbers with anybody? What's the incentive or the reason for me to do it? And unless there's some level of trust and motivation to continue with the partnership, there's very real relationship and trust-based kind of considerations that need to be there. So a relationship builder would be one part. And we're talking about successful people. So in the book, you've highlighted, you, know, you have highlighted some challenges where very often, uh, like the perspective or the, the perception, is that this guy's a really nice guy, but he can't cut it in sales. So I will stick him in the channel. He can't do any damage in there, and it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be okay. But actually, that um, those relationship building or account management skills can be very, very useful if you're talking about, like you've mentioned already, a longer term perspective. Another way is somebody who's, let's say. Very good in sales, like really good in sales and good at closing, good at qualification, particularly qualification that can help the partner qualify effectively, that can build trust as well. But a lot of it boils down to, uh, you know, people who've built really good trust because of the consistency, the reliability, the expectation settings, the taking ownership, and all that kind of thing. There's that. Then there's the having some technical skills. Maybe they're brilliant on product or they're brilliant on qualification or they're brilliant on closing or questioning or whatever it is. So they're bringing value to the table and then moving up the value chain that they they can help partners with strategic considerations because a lot of partners have, they're small enough businesses and they have a lot of activity that they have to manage to make their payroll every month. So to, to have a perspective that's a bit wider, that says here's, the general trends in the in the industry, here's the the trends in our country and how it's working, here's the things that you need to be aware of or, or risks that are happening that you weren't aware of before. Is a general business acumen broader than just the, the vendor strategy. The vendor strategy that would be part of it, but there's like a is really thinking about how do I help this business in order to do very well. So like the really good guys are people who've earned the right To have those types of conversations with senior people in the partner. And I think everybody has to earn the right to those. You know, it's not a gimme. Just because you have a role in a company doesn't mean that you automatically get a seat at the table. So that's kind of a, they're the people that I'm seeing as successful. They've got the relationship skills, the trust is a key thing. They understand the motivations, they understand the measurement systems. They're bringing value to multiple levels. So at the tactical level to the sales, maybe account executives, sales managers, even service managers, that they understand the operations of the partner and then that that they they earn the right to have discussions with the C-level executives and to help them. Not to say you should do this or is to say, here are some things that are happening. What would you like to do with those kind of things? You know, it's like as a partner, as opposed to a a dictator.
0: Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. One conclusion that I've reached along with the conversations I've had with people like Jay McBain is that a channel manager is more like a general manager. And a channel chief has more characteristics akin to a chief executive than a sales director. And the kind of people who thrive in the channel aren't the ones who have been found themselves in there because they weren't very good at closing and what harm can they do? You earn the right uh, to the, uh, the top table, and you have to demonstrate real value to your partner and to the end customer because being referred in is a privilege. It's not a right. And I think one of the problems that we've seen a lot when we were researching the book was how many vendors had a sort of arrogance about them. You know, we are XYZ company. Of course, they'll want to talk to us. But... The challenge here is the partners have spent a lifetime building up a portfolio of clients and they've got these—they've got the relationship. And it's understandable that they don't want to let the, the channel manager in if they don't trust them. Now, this is their livelihood and they can choose to sell one vendor's stuff or someone else's. And I think the best channel managers help the partner make the decision, we're going to sell your stuff. We're not going to take three solutions in and leave it up to the end customer to make the decision. We're going to advise them because you are the best solution for our client instead of just throwing mud at the wall, knowing that they're probably going to pick it up because they're the the partner. But what I'm seeing happen very often is that vendor channel managers focus so much on the product, and they don't really understand that they're dealing with human beings with personal goals, personal objectives. They uh, have these close-knit relationships with their customers. They're under pressure to hit targets. And it's their job to enable them to sell more. It's not to be basically a product manager under a different title. So my question is this. What kind of tools do channel managers need to provide to the partners to help them do their job better, more efficiently, more reliably, more predictably?
1: I have a very simple answer to that question, Marcus. Which is, ask them. You know, the partner, if you've got enough trust, will tell you what they need. So just ask them and give them what they need. The challenge with that is the scalability question. So sometimes, you know, I'm a channel, I'm a channel account manager, or I'm a channel manager. Maybe I have multiple partners that I have to uh, have to work with. But if I Ask them, and the three of them or four of them say, we could really help. do with some help on how do we market to a particular industry, that maybe you connect them to the right people. You said that everybody's a human being, and it's, it's right. Everybody wants to talk to you, but everybody wants to sell for you, as you point out, is a, is a different question. So if you ask, it can be, partly it can be a qualification exercise for the vendor to say, what would you need from us to sell? And if the partner hasn't really thought that through, and they they don't really have an answer to that question, it might be a a qualification question for the channel manager to go, is this partner really in? You know, has something changed in the relationship? Do they really want to do this? Are are we relevant in their game or not? You can provide tools and tools are very useful if people have the motivation to, to use them. And also, like everybody needs a slightly different tool. So if I'm, a, and it depends on, on the scope of the relationship, but in simple terms, ask the partner, find out do they still want to do it, and if so, where are they really struggling? A nice thing about not being product centric is if you can help them improve their sales process, then everything that's in their sales bag will sell more, not just for that vendor, and that that's a really nice way to build. Trust and to earn the right to have further conversations with the partner, because if you can help their overall business, including the part that you're responsible for, then you become more valuable.
0: Absolutely, I think the challenge here that we try to build into the book is that if you're a great channel manager, you you are going to help your partners sell more, more often, for more money to more customers. And you're going to help them grow their key accounts. One of the m- tools that we built into the, the book is called CARE, and it stands for Keep, Attain, Recapture, and Expand. And it enables people to very quickly identify where they should be investing their time because many of these organizations are selling to enterprise. And those are good expand accounts because they're actual marketplaces in and of themselves. There's business that has lapsed for whatever reason. And often, they just kind of write it off. But if the vendor can help them win that business back, that's a huge feather in their cap. And you know, not every prospect is equal. Some keep accounts. They don't need as much energy and effort and resource and money and time and marketing development funds thrown at them what they need is to be loved and taken care of so that they they don't drop the ball. And then there's the new business piece, and that's the attain account. So how does the vendor help the partner penetrate accounts that their competition currently hold? And that then raises the question of understanding the competition. So we've developed a tool called the competitor impact tool, which is specifically intended to help the partner and the vendor work together to identify where they can get those wins, how they can block the competition. We're just coming out with another tool called the account retention tool, which is about how do we protect and grow our existing accounts. So I think you're absolutely on the money. It's all about helping the vendor, uh, the partner, to sell more and to achieve their growth objectives and to do so in a manner that builds trust with the end user so that. They want to spend more. They see that partnership as bringing real value. So my next question then, I mean, you mentioned the Jeffrey Moore book, Crossing the Chasm. I think a lot of technology companies have kind of used that as a Bible, but it's great in theory. The practicalities of going from 1 million to 3 million, from 3 million to 10, from 10 to 50 are often down to having the right people, and because they're resource-constrained, They absolutely have to go to the channel. And we've seen this trend building over the last 20 years. My question is this. As you look forward, how do you see the technology and uh, channel partnership marketplace changing and evolving uh, with the advent of new technologies and with the shift away from direct sales forces more towards the channel?
1: It's an interesting question because it's not just a technology shift. There's business model shifts that are coming with it. Um, So yes, the channel is is key for lots of reasons. So a lot of the things that are sold at an enterprise level or business to business, it's not like if you're selling light bulbs, you could buy that with one click on the internet. If you're selling an electrical system for a house, then probably you'd need to have a qualified electrician. If you're selling an electrical system for a house that's going to connect to three or four other houses, you need a different type of electrician. So in terms of the capacities of channels, it's not just what you can sell, it's also what can be delivered. So the people constraints and the scaling constraints are on multiple levels. And if I'm a partner and I, I can sell a lot of deals, but I can't get enough consultants or enough people involved to be able to implement them, then my growth slows. So it's not just a sales question it's an operations question and a business model question and I think that there's uh more and more competition for resources who can do things and also a lot of stuff has been automated so the skills change very very fast so what was uh you know something that took a while to implement can now be done remotely with very few people so a new service needs to be developed or a new approach needs to be developed. For a lot of partner companies it's there's a real balancing act between a sales arm and a service arm and what the constraints in one lead to constraints in the other. And for vendors it's a similar problem actually because if there's not enough people who know how to do what it is that you're doing in a particular country or a particular area it'll slow the growth rate. So there's quite a lot of, uh, you know, obviously a lot of things, more things are going to be done as a service on an automated basis, but there's still going to be plenty of things that are complex and need complex skills, which take time to learn. So uh, for a lot of partners, it's about figuring out where they want to play and to what extent they want to be a a sales-driven organization and selling stuff that's relatively quick to implement or Selling more complex kind of things that solves. What a description of it is. We don't really have problems in a lot of companies. We have predicaments. So a problem is something that's relatively linear and easy to solve. I have a cash flow problem. Okay, why is that? Well, we're paying out more money than we're getting in at particular times. Okay, that's fairly simple. But it becomes a predicament when you start to think well our supply chains are built like this and our go-to-market is built like this and we have these different people involved. So it's a predicament. It's a complicated situation that needs analytical skills and needs decision-making. And it's hard to automate that type of stuff. So I think where a lot of channels is really interesting is a lot of partner companies and a lot of vendors are dealing with predicaments rather than problems. So they're dealing with complex situations that are have a lot of changeability going into it. And they're trying to automate the things that can be automated, which they're doing with machine learning and, and artificial intelligence and these kind of things. And the skills to keep that moving, people are are learning very fast. So the consultants are learning very fast, the sales teams are learning very fast. The pace is accelerating massively. So I think that's a kind of a, a macro trends level looking at it. To bring it down to the practicalities is a a partner need partner companies and vendors are looking where do i place my bets for the next six months and in parallel to doing this what do we need to be learning at the same time what do we need to be getting into what do we need to be getting out of and what are our customers really needing right now
0: well this is really interesting and i think it's an extremely valid point the difference between problems and predicaments because uh, the way I see, see things already happening, but I suspect it's just going to increase in complexity in future. Is you're going to have I don't know 14 different vendors working at eight layers in the stack, and someone is going to have to be able to coordinate all of that. And what's really key is having great processes and systems, being able to be very contractual with people, so that everybody knows what their part is to play in the process, and then being able to mobilize the C-suite in the various partners, the various vendors, and the different stakeholders within the end user, because it's just, there's no question, that whole piece around predicaments, they have choices, and it's about being able to make decisions, and increasingly, decision-making is going to be something that's going to become really critical. But very often, when you're in the heat of battle, your adrenaline kicks in, your primal response isn't necessarily the best one. And so one of the themes that we really tried to drive home in the book was it's the planning that matters, not so much the plan. And if you look at one of my heroes, Napoleon, before any French soldier ever uh, set foot out of France, he'd already decided where he was going to beat uh, the Prussians and which general he was going to beat at the Battle of Austerlitz, two years before they ever left French soil. And as a result of that, it was that really focused strategic thinking that I think is such a rare skill. So again, my question is this. How do you foster that culture where planning is not something that's put on the back burner? It's done once a year, and then it's just left in the back of the car, and it's only dragged out when you have a performance review?
1: It's interesting because there's a move in HR away from the annual performance reviews because they seem that they don't really work. So planning, as you said, is a process and not there's not the, the outcome of the plan. So I think there's a couple of things. The first one is perspective. If I have a very simple perspective, which is I need to hit these targets every quarter or every month or whatever it is, then my planning will be on that basis. and. That that can work from a tactical point of view, but in parallel, there's like, a, what's the strategy and the relationship like, and how do I keep that moving? So to come back to your question about channel managers being possibly the next CEOs, is that in order to to plan effectively and to stop kind of being stuck on a on a on a tactical level, is to understand the predicaments that the partners are facing, the complexities that they're dealing with. And also the complexities that you're dealing with in an organization. So you have to balance getting the short-term results that are needed and keeping the momentum and the velocity and all the good things that come with that, you know, the engagement and and everything. And one eye always to what's next. And uh, I always liked, there's a, a, a quote, I can't remember where I read it, everybody's looking for a future with a smile in it. So The customer is looking for a future with a smile in it after they work with a partner. The partner is looking for a future with a smile in it from the vendor. The vendor is looking for a future with a smile in it from the partner. So that the planning shouldn't just be tactical, but it's about delighting people. Because I think this is another big factor. If you look at as a service and adoption and that kind of thing, And you mentioned the complex landscape in the stack, you know, multiple vendors, multiple partners. It's easier to change now than it has been in the past for companies and organizations. And unless the experience that they have with you is one that's making them happy now and that they can see a happy future together, then it's unlikely that you're going to meet your economic goals anyway. So... The planning kind of process is is about planning now to get results now to keep people happy now, and also to have the perspective to go, "What smile can we put in the future of the other person? you know what what is it that they could look forward to and go, "Yeah, that looks really, really good in order to keep that relationship and to keep that motivation and to keep the human elements front and center. So how do you foster those skills? I don't think it's a skills question. I think it's a mindset question and a perspective question. So if you've got the right mindset and the right perspective and the right motivations and you understand the motivations of everybody involved, planning becomes a way of building the trust to keep that going. And it's an ongoing thing. In a way, it's no different than business has ever been. You know, the best business is is referral business, is to have that longer term perspective balance with the shorter-term needs, because ultimately for profitability, in and as a service like a business model, that long-term relationship is key for everybody.
0: Tell me this, in a culture where larger companies are driven by their need to report on a quarterly basis, is that even going to be possible for the larger organizations because of how they're measured, how they're compensated, and how they're judged?
1: The answer to that question is an interesting one because it depends on how the companies are valued by the markets. If the valuation of the company's revenue streams is based on, you get a higher valuation because you've got repeatable revenue streams. Like a, the longer term question becomes an interesting one. So if you start, if a partner or a vendor starts to experience churn on their longer term revenue streams, then the valuation goes down anyway you know, that the share price will, will crash and people will, won't invest in the company because they don't see the, the long-term thing. It's a really tough predicament rather than a problem for CEOs and, and, and C-suite executives now to balance this need for quarterly reporting, which is absolutely key, but also to give the investors a future with a smile in it. Because it, what it means is that nobody can afford to take their eye off the ball with their existing customers. And the plans to keep the existing guys happy and to get referrals out of that is a key element to being profitable and to being sustainable in the longer term. And every business owner wants a sustainable business, as in one that's still gonna be there in ten years' time. Is it possible? I think yes. Is it easy? No. Is it a problem? No. It's a predicament. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it's like a, like Peter Drucker said, culture eat strategy for breakfast. But I I think more and more organizations are looking at the balance between the quarterly reporting and uh, this ongoing revenue stream and, and, and retention and re- retaining things. I think that's uh, another area of interest. you know. So I think it's definitely top of mind for a lot of companies, how that plays out in culture and in operations. I think there's still a lot of things moving, a lot of moving parts there. But uh, personally, my thoughts are that that's kind of a it's definitely a trend that's there. Well,
0: I mean, this is really interesting because uh, you, you mentioned that HR is moving away from the annual performance review because they absolutely don't work. And we, we've always advocated 90 day uh, review cycles with interim reviews in between from a performance management perspective. But I think that it also needs to happen with respect to the relationship between vendor and partner and vice versa, and then vendor and partner with the end user customer. So we've built in the client satisfaction tool to make sure that each side is being measured on the stuff that's in their control that matters to the other parties, and then a quarterly value review so that you can reset and you can track and measure what's going on to make sure that you're advancing all the time. What I'm really interested in is whether people have the wherewithal to change. There was an article, Harvard Business Review, produced in 1996, which was republished in 2016. And it was saying that nothing changes and that the culture at the top permeates down through the bottom. And when you read it in 2016, exactly the same problems existed within the big four management consultancies. And it takes a very, very brave leader to move away from what feels familiar and move to this new paradigm. I think that many organizations will probably go by the wayside because if you look at the FTSE 350 and Fortune 500, the ones that were there 20, 30 years ago, there's only a fraction of them left today. And if we look 20 years hence, chances are there's still only going to be a fraction of the ones that are there today. So what needs to happen internally within the leadership team for them to commit to that level of change and take that risk and that leap of faith?
1: It's interesting, I was listening to another podcast called The Innovation Show, and one of the the guests on that mentioned that Nokia are always brought out as an example of a company that missed the boat, you know? And he said, the guest, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guest on the show said, actually, they didn't miss the boat. Executives within Nokia saw what was happening, and they went to the board with a plan to change. And the board said, no. So I'm paraphrasing. Basically, it's a people question. Change is a people question. Why would I change? It does take bravery on the part of people. So the other way to think about it is, I think Anderson and Horowitz, a venture capital company in Silicon Valley, had a quote, something like, uh, you either discipline yourself or the market disciplines you. You know, It's like, uh, there's is one way or the other, discipline will be there. So the only question is timing, you know, So uh, or the main question is timing. When, When do you change and why? If you have to change, you'll change. If you don't have to change, but you think you should, that's a difficult conversation and that takes bravery and it takes a vision and it takes leadership. And it also takes multiple conversations with multiple people. So it's not just that the board are convinced. The executive team have to be convinced. They have to convince other people. And the real challenge comes from, like I I have a good friend who who says, when I was a kid, my mother said, do this, do that, do the other. And did I do it? No. And that was my mother, the person I loved the most in the world. Mm. So what chance of people with other people? So if there's a good reason why, and I think, and the good reason why has timing associated with it. So, If we don't do this now, we're dead. That's one way to do it. If we do this now, it allows us to serve on a much bigger scale, to do much more good work, to make much bigger contributions. That's another way to do it. But it's not an easy thing. And it takes sometimes a critical mass of people to kind of go in a company. So not just one leader, but other people involved to make those kind of decisions. And companies do it. You know, there are. Really, really successful companies around, you know, who who have changed things, and they've done it because they have a purpose. So this is one of the reasons, maybe, why there's the, all the purpose narrative around, like the purpose of our business, which is much broader than just a, an economic purpose.
0: I know they're often touted, but I think it's a really good example. You know, Apple used to have a range of about 300 products, and then they realised that they couldn't possibly service it, so they took it down to about 10. And miraculously, when they got really good at delivering you know, products and uh, experience uh, with just those 10, they skyrocketed. And I, I think you know, this comes back down to that you know, key message that the leaders of the future will come, I think many of them will come out of the channel because they have to be able to manage and drive behavior with no power, only influence. And I, I've got a lovely formula. For trust, which is credibility times reliability times attention times intimacy over self interest equals trust. And very often, people who are in uh, positions of key influence really understand that their self interest comes last. And people have to know that you care about them, that you have their best interests at heart, and that you're paying genuine full attention who they need. And you're not selling selfishly. You're not managing selfishly. If if you don't believe that you're the right person to help, you absolutely have to tell them, you know, I don't think we're right. Go to our competitor. And as the complexity of uh, tech sales increases and they have to solve more and more predicaments, that's where the real leaders of the future are going to come from, I think.
1: It's interesting because... What is self interest? One of the, the reasons that purpose is it comes out is that self interest is means selfishness, basically, is thinking about yourself and only about yourself. And if you are looking at predicaments, which are some of the bigger problems that are out there, you can't solve a predicament by yourself, you know? It needs more people. So the, it's not that self interest isn't important. It's just that if it comes first, it undermines all the other, you know, reliability, credibility, all that other stuff. So that also applies at a company level. What's the company's purpose? You know, why are they there? If it's just to make money, then you can do that. But what it will mean is that you have a transaction, you don't have a relationship, you don't have an ongoing business, which is where all the investment in branding and all that kind of thing comes in but it's sometimes it's really really simple the example with apple was good like you know to go from 300 products to 10 is just like really focus on keeping the people who are who believe in what you're doing and who are working with you keep them happy work with them and keep them happy and keep servicing them and then the self-interest comes anyway you know you get the reward as a result if you're oriented towards others and not towards yourself, and you really provide the service. So, if you're a channel manager and you become partner centric, or you're a vendor and a partner and you become really focused on customers, then you'll get what your self interest is anyway, because you'll have helped them. And people will want to talk about you because they'll say, you know, these guys did a, a job that was much better than anything I was expecting.
0: So, Emerson's of compensation states to get more, give more. And my dad used to be in the army. You know, he's died, sadly, but uh, he was in the army. And when he joined in 1966, most of the officer corps was made up of very dominant, results-orientated, driven people. Over the last 10 years, I've done a lot of work in resettlement of uh, service veterans. And what I've noticed is that the majority of people who have come from the officer corps now are very other-orientated. They're all about looking after their people. They live in the trenches, they eat the same food, but they come last. And I, I think, or they put themselves last. And your point about uh, selfish self interest versus longer term self interest by helping others get what they want is absolutely on the
1: money. It's very simple. So it's back to the perspective thing again and the mindset. You know, like we started the conversation with the partner Cedric and really. Everything else, all the the tools, the expectation management, like the uh, the techniques for management, all work if the other person is convinced that there's a future with a smile in it for them with you. So, and the only way that they can see that is if you show it. It's not enough to say it; you have to show it in what you do. So, the example of the officer who eats food with their people is also simple stuff. Sometimes for a sales manager to say. I trust you that you've got this. You know, I mean, I can micromanage you and make it scrutiny. You know, but if you're if you're killing it, I'm getting out of your way. You, you know, and it's similar for a channel manager is like, uh, you know, if a partner is really doing amazing, is like you're doing so so good. All I have to do here is is how do I serve you better, and that's that's what you're aiming for, yeah. One
0: of the f- foundations of uh, the of methodology is a process called transactional analysis, TA. And in TA, every messed up dysfunctional relationship can be defined by three points of a triangle. The victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer. The victim voice is, why me? This is so unfair, save me. The persecutor is attacking of your identity. You did this. You're such a disappointment. You've ruined the whole day. And the rescuer helps without boundaries or permission. And their byline is, I was only trying to help. And when you have, historically, the sort of very dominant, driven, results oriented would be, you do this, you do that. And what that does is it stifles any form of innovation and people do the least amount possible not to get caught or called out. And the rescuing leader is likely to create learned helplessness and upward delegation. And both of those are very disempowering. And I came across a, an alternative. My favorite philosopher, Bruce Lee, was asked, what's the best way to avoid a punch? And he said, be somewhere else. And in uh, the alternative, it's called the winner's triangle, where you're vulnerable, you're nurturing and empathic, and you're assertive. So instead of, it's not my fault, the sat-nav took me all the way around the house I was doing my best. You say, Dara, I am so sorry, it's entirely my fault. I misjudged the traffic. I left too late. You must be upset with me. I would understand if you'd like me just to turn around and we can cancel the meeting and I'll talk it up to experience. I hope you can forgive me. And I I think people need to learn to operate from that winner's triangle, but it's so difficult to let go of your baggage, your attachment, your judgment. And in a channel role in particular, I believe that unless you operate from that winner's triangle, you will invariably end up being a selfish channel manager. And you'll find yourself in fights that could have been prevented or avoided, coming up against objections and resistance that could have been neutralized. If only you had the humility to say, I don't know it all. What can I do to help? Teach me. And just like to wrap up on that because I'm conscious I'm taking a lot of your time. In terms of the best of the best that you've come across, what are the qualities that you've seen in the best channel chiefs and channel managers?
1: A really good definition of trust that I heard is that what they think, what they say, and what they do are all aligned. And the people who think, say, and do with honesty and with humility, they're the best. That It sums it up so it ties back with your, with your winner's triangle. I mean, we could go there on skills and behaviors and everything, but fundamentally, it's about knowing yourself and knowing the other person and making that relationship and that business one that's based on trust.
0: I couldn't agree more. In fact, The Winner's Triangle specifically is about being authentic, and that is absolutely at the heart of what we tried to develop with the book. I'm so grateful for your contribution today, and it's been really enlightening. Tell me, how can people get in touch with you?
1: So they can find me on LinkedIn, Dara Power, or on Twitter, at Dara Power. That's the easiest way, always open to new connections.
0: Okay, and in terms of the kind of introductions that people can make to you that would be valuable, what sort of things are you looking for so that you can develop your own skill set or the kind of books that you're interested in or the people that
1: you'd like to be introduced to? That's a really great question. So fundamentally, anything that helps people to get to know themselves and become better leaders, uh, better salespeople, and just better people are always interesting. Any aspect of human performance or psychology. The other passion I have, uh, we discussed earlier, is graphics. So I like to draw and sketch. So anything that particularly in a business context, anything there. And I'm also very curious. So I'm open to things that are, you know, left field.
0: Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, three books that are must read. Have you read Just Listen by Mark Goldston?
1: Fantastic book. Yeah. I actually have a summary. I'll send it to you.
0: I did a podcast interview with him. If you uh, want to have a listen to that, it's a fantastic. He's one of my heroes. The other one is Ego is the Enemy by Ryan
1: Holiday. I haven't read that one, but that sounds like it's right up my street.
0: Absolutely. And let's pick a third. Clarity by Jamie Smart.
1: Actually, yes, I've read that. And let me give you one back on that one. So that comes from a school of thought called Three Principles, which is really, really interesting. And there's a, a group called Insight Principles who've written a book called Invisible Power, Insight Principles at Work. And okay. um, so that that's a book recommendation for you.
0: Wonderful. We'll take the conversation offline, but um, I suspect we've both got some really interesting books because I've read about 750 in the last four years, thanks to the Power of Audible, because my eyesight went and it was (laughs) my favorite website on the planet. I think I've I've basically funded Jeff Bezos uh, for the last few years. But, uh, yeah, I'd love to have a conversation with you about um, good reading matter Very similar interest, And again, thank you so much for uh, doing the graphic of the book. It's a fantastic summary. Uh, You'll all see it on the intro to the podcast. It's going to be the picture that goes with it. But get in touch with Dara if you have ideas around great people, development, uh, graphics, and innovation. Once again, Dara, thank you so much for getting involved today and for your support of the book. Much appreciated.
1: Thank you, Marcus.
0: Take care. Thank you. This is Marcus Cappy signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. Get in touch. If there's a topic that you would like me to cover, if there's an author that you'd like me to interview, then please get in touch. And I'm delighted to tell you that I'm going to be interviewing Mike Michalowicz, who is the author of Profit First, which is a must read for anybody who's running a business. Keep an eye out for that one as well. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.